Would you join me in prayer, please? Our great and awesome and gracious God, we know that the opening question of the Westminster Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Lord, we pray that if this is the case, that we would be taught that through the truth of your word, that your Holy Spirit would come and impress that truth upon our heart, that we are made for your glory and that we are made to enjoy you forever. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, as I began our series, or as we begin our series in the book of Genesis, um, I was studying a couple of years ago, I read a book here written by Richard Barcellos entitled Better Than the Beginning. It is a book based upon biblical theology where the author demonstrates that what awaits us at the end of creation is even better than the beginning. And as I read through it, I thought to myself, this is how we need to begin our study in Genesis. I know you're looking forward to getting into a verse-by-verse -verse study through a single book. I am as well. But I think the best place to begin is to start with the ending. The word Genesis means origin or beginning. We're about to journey into the origin of the universe, the origin of all life, including humanity, and most especially the origin of God's particular people. I think it would be extremely helpful to start our study with the why question. Why is God creating, and what are his intentions? After all, if he is self-existing and needs nothing from his creation, what is the end purpose of his creation? That's what we want to answer this morning. And while we may infer God's intentions from the first three chapters of Genesis, it does not give us the answer implicitly. The best way to arrive at our solution is to also look at what the Bible says about our future. What can believers in Christ anticipate in eternity? We're going to do that by looking at a few of the verses in the final two chapters of the Bible. And then we're going to look at the Apostle Paul's explanation of the why question in his letter to the Romans. And after that, I'm going to provide you with just a, a few points to ponder. These are concepts that should be in the back of your mind as you work your way through Genesis. Now, you may question, why would we look at later books of the Bible in order to explain the first book of the Bible? Why doesn't the writer of Genesis speak for himself? Doesn't that get us out of order chronologically and can create an anachronism? Now, anachronism is a fancy $5 word that means to attribute a custom or an event or an object to a period of time that it doesn't belong. So, for an extreme example, an observer from today might look back into history and ask, well, why didn't the Jews in 586 B.C., when Jerusalem was being attacked by the Babylonians, why didn't they use their Utsi machine guns? Well, that's anachronistic to assume that 6th century B.C. Jews had access to modern weapons. That's a more obvious case, but sadly this is done too often by people who do not understand history. A more fitting example is how our 18th and 19th century American forebears justified antebellum slavery using the scriptures without understanding that slavery in the first century was not the same type of chattel slavery so prominent in the 1800s of this land. That was anachronistic. 
And that caused them to make major assumptions. So it begs the question, are we being anachronistic with a book written in the 14th century B.C. by looking at a letter and an apocryphal book written in the 1st century A.D.? Well, let me give you three quick responses to that. Number one, there is such a thing as correct and accurate assessment of history. I can be completely accurate in commenting on an event in the past without being anachronistic. Number two, while the author Moses will not explicitly state the reason for creation, I think once we see Paul's interpretation, it can be inferred from Genesis, and we will see it definitely explicitly in other parts of the first five books of the Bible. And last, and more important as to why I'm so confident that we're not being anachronistic, is that Genesis, Romans, and Revelation all have the same author. Christians believe the Bible had a single author. All of it was inspired by the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. And the inspired authors of the first century were moved in the same way as Moses was in the 14th century B.C. The message of God's work in creation is consistent from beginning to end. So like reading a murder mystery novel, perhaps you're the type to read the last chapter where the criminal is revealed and then go back to the beginning knowing what the author knew all along. We can do that with the Bible because it has a single source of inspiration. Now, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. It's going to be extremely helpful if you have your Bibles open here. This is found on page 1041 of your pew Bible. My goal here is to give us a broad overview of our future in eternity, not provide exposition to the book of Revelation. I'm telling you that up front so that you're not going to ask me, well, why didn't you bring this out or why didn't you delve into that? The answer is because for the purpose of this sermon, we need to speak about heaven in generalities. This is not a detailed exposition of Revelation. Perhaps after Genesis, we could study Revelation together. I'm going to read Revelations 21, verses 1 through 8, and then skip ahead to chapter 22 and read verses 1 through 5. Yes, there is a wonderful description of the New Jerusalem in between these two sections. To explain would require a great deal of moving back and forth between the Old Testament and the New. So for time purposes, I'm not going to draw from those verses, especially considering that much of the primary information from them is stated in the two sections that we're looking at now. So here we go. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son." 
But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, skip ahead to Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, it should not matter what your eschatological position may be, whether it's pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, or daffodil, we all should be in agreement that this is a description of our future state. Now, I'm going to be quick here, and we're going to get out on time, I promise you. So don't freak out when I tell you. I'm going to draw from these 13 verses nine observations about our future and eternity. It will help if you have your worship guide as I have them all listed there. So strap yourself in. Here we go. Number one, our future existence, in our future existence, we will dwell in a renewed heaven and a renewed earth made new by the one seated on the throne. We will dwell in a renewed heaven and renewed earth made new by the one seated on the throne. We see that clearly in chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, and also verse 5. We need to make sure that we understand that when we talk about what happens to the old things is a passing away or a fading out. God doesn't destroy everything and start all over. If he did, that would mean that Satan could claim victory that he destroyed God's creation. But the Lord redeems his creation. The old way the universe operated is done. He makes it new as he states in verse 5, meaning we will now exist as we were intended without any sin whatsoever. This brings tremendous comfort in so many ways. When I see my loved ones in heaven, they won't be something other than what they were here on earth. They will be renewed and redeemed without any effects of sin. No one will have any illnesses or impairments. When we meet in heaven and you come up to hug me, you will embrace the same body that I had on earth, but a glorified and renewed body. Amen. Number two, according to chapter 21, verse 3, heaven will be a place where God and man dwell together without any hostility whatsoever. Heaven will be a place where God and man dwell together without any hostility whatsoever. This is a connector to our original state in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. We will understand God's role in our lives as sovereign and our roles as subordinates without any sense of rebellion or pushback. We will be at perfect peace. We will be as people, and God will be recognized as God. Number three, one of the reasons there will be no more rebellion, according to verse 8, is that those who refuse to bow the knee to God and want their selfish desires will be dealt with in judgment. Full justice will be served. Every sin will be paid for, either at the cross of Jesus, the Messiah, or at the final judgment. No one gets away with any crime against God or the rest of humanity. 
I have a friend from high school who during our college years was murdered on her way to school in Indiana. That was 30 years ago, and her killer has never been found. But in eternity, God knows whether the killer is still living today or dead, justice will be served in that matter. All wrongs will be made right. Number four, according to chapter 21, verse 4, and chapter 22, verse 3, there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more pain or crying because the curse of sin and its effects will be removed. It will be no more. We will have a much better understanding of this when we look at the curse of the ground in Genesis chapter 3. But in glory, there will be no more effects of the curse of sin. Number five, the people of God, those who belong to the Lamb, will be treated like family and have full, uninhibited access to God. Chapter 21, verse 2, communicates an intimate relationship with God like a marriage. We see this familial tie also in chapter 21, verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And again, in chapter 22, verse 4, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. All these verses communicate an intimacy with our Creator. Number 6. In chapter 22, verses 1 through 2, the tree of life and the spring of life, which waters it, will be open to all who inhabit heaven. Now, I'm going to explain this a little more in a couple of weeks when we look at the Garden of Eden. But this is what Jesus promised when he said in John 10, 10, I have come to bring life and life more abundant. But this mention of the tree of life is a significant marker to our original state in the first two chapters of Genesis. This tree was something that humanity was denied access after the fall when man and woman were banned from Eden. Now, there is no, un, or there is unprohibited access here. We're not prohibited to go into the tree. Number seven, according to chapter 22, verse three, there will be perfect worship of God. There will be perfect worship of God. Sometimes, when, when I am singing spiritual truths with my brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing we're all in one mind of what we're proclaiming, I can, I can get swept away in such a moment. And I just don't want it to end. And then there are times when my mind wanders or my thoughts condemn me or I allow the resentment I feel towards the sinful world or, or even towards another person to interfere with my worship. It will not be like that in glory. In heaven, it'll be like that first feeling forever whether we're singing or not. Our worship will be perfect in spirit and in truth. Number eight, God will be our perfect light source. In verses uh, 22, verse 5, there will be no more darkness. Nothing will be hidden from us ever again. There will be no more deception. There'll be uninhibited discovery of the knowledge that God wants us to have. And finally, the ninth observation, look carefully at the end of chapter 22, verse 5. They, meaning the people of God referred to in verse 4, will reign forever and ever. Just as we spoke about from Psalm 8 last week, our rightful place as vice regents on the new heaven and earth will be restored. This is shocking to me. It would seem we, former sinners, are the last people that God would want to rule this future. 
But we must consider we are made anew without sin, which will once again qualify us to rule. Now, even though we went through these nine observations rather quickly, they should be no less stunning to us. I long for heaven to to be in a sinless state with my brothers and sisters, having full access to God and, and delightful worship for all of eternity, especially in contrast to the observation of point number three. This is the future of the one who has placed his or her faith in Jesus, the Lamb of God. This is the original purpose for mankind. So if this is where we are headed, why the in-between? If this is what the end looks like, why point A to point B? Why not just start with the ending and just let it be? Why the fall in Genesis 3? Why the murder in Genesis 4? Why the deluge and the destruction in Genesis 6 and 7? Why the hardship of Abram's wanderings and the long-suffering of not having a child only to receive one at age 100? Why Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19? Why the feud between Esau and Jacob? Why the treachery of Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery? Why, why does God allow these seemingly negative events happen between Genesis chapter 2 and the present day if perfection is the end result? There is one reason. God is working in all and through all of this some way it reveals an aspect of his glory. Now, if you will, turn to Romans chapter 11. This is found on page 947 of your pew Bible. You can also find it in your worship guide, but I would encourage you to look at it uh, in its context here in Romans chapter 11. With one verse, Paul explains the journey from point A to point B. And it's verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now let me briefly give you a synopsis of the context of this verse. Leading up through chapter 10, Paul has been describing the magnificent salvation that has come through Jesus Christ for people everywhere, Jew and Gentile alike. Those who place their faith in Jesus and his work are the true inheritors of God's promises. So if this is the case, then what about unbelieving Jews who are the instruments of Jesus' crucifixion and continue to not recognize the gospel? Has God rejected the blood descendants of Abraham? Paul states, sadly, despite the fact that there is a small remnant among them, that eventually there will come to some belief, the majority of the Jews will continue to choose a salvation by works rather than a salvation by grace through Jesus. But that doesn't mean we stop sharing the good news of Jesus with them. Once we Gentiles were outcast and we did not have access to the promises of Abraham. Now Paul tells the church they have the responsibility to extend mercy to the disobedient Jews. In fact, according to 11, verse 32, chapter 11, verse 32, the Jews must recognize this disobedience if they are to receive mercy. But until then, they are under judgment. They are not part of God's foreordained plan. Is that unfair? That the first group do not receive the promises, but the second group does merely because they believe. Well, referring to the same judgment earlier in chapter 9, verses 20 through 24, Paul wrote there, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? 
Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he's called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Paul says believers and unbelievers will reveal God's glory. No doubt Paul was saddened at his kinsman's refusal to bow the knee to Jesus. So one might ask, is God obligated to do something else to bring the Jews to their senses more than a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus dying for sinners just because they were the original chosen people? Obviously, Paul believed not. He responds with the concluding verses of, of uh, chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. It communicates uh, to us it's a wonder that anyone is saved at all. He, he writes here in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! Paul's essentially saying here, God has his ways. They are higher than men's. They have a purpose. And in support of this, he quotes Isaiah and Job, For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And here's the reason. That even though we don't understand God's rationale for what he does, we can trust in it. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Paul uses three Greek prepositional phrases that point to God. Ek, dia, and ice. First of all, with the ek, things are from him. He is the source of all things. The first statement in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, tells us that in the beginning was God. He preexisted before heaven and earth, and he created it all. Psalm 33 supports this. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, and he puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth feel the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Everything in existence comes from God. He is the source of all things, and he should receive glory for it. He is the creator of the stars. He thought of things like sunsets and the color green and DNA. He designed the human body and, and its growth from an embryo to an adult. He is the author of salvation. To him belongs all the glory. The second preposition is dia, through him. He is not only the originator, he is the sustainer of all things. The Lord reveals through the prophet Isaiah, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, from the east of the west, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Even the great king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, 
had to confess in Daniel chapter 4, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The Lord does as he pleases. He does what he wants as he works through space-time history. The air you breathe in your lungs right now, that's the Lord's doing. The fact that gravity is keeping you firmly planted on the earth, that is the Lord's doing. But does this mean that tragedy in the world is also the Lord's doing? Well, let me answer that from an episode in Genesis. Remember how Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery? Instead of resenting them, this is what he told them when they found him in Egypt. And this is found in Genesis 45. He said to them, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these last two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither planting or harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it is not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. The brothers were completely responsible for their sin. But God worked through their sin in order to bring about his purposes for his glory. God is never responsible for sin, but part of his wrath that's described in Romans 1 is that ever since we rebelled against him in the garden, we continue to give ourselves over to our own sin just over and over again. But that does not stop God. He still continues to work, even through this sinful world, for his glory. And as our sustainer, we should give him glory that he also restrains sin in common grace that we're not as bad as we can be right now. So he is the source, he is the sustainer, and he is the end reason for all things. The Greek word ice means to or toward. All things were created for him. Psalm 119, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day for all things are your servants. And again, Isaiah 43, 7, the Lord takes ownership of everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And he states again in Isaiah 48, 11, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. He is the creator, therefore we should be for his good pleasure. And that last line connects us to the last clause of Romans eleven thirty six: To him be glory forever. That is the reason for all of it. Everything belongs to him. He can do whatever he pleases, but he does not reign without purpose. The beginning and the ultimate end and all that is in between is for the glory of God. Every situation that God has ordained, every object that God has created is all to reveal his glory. 
even in the darkness, in the dark times, like a star in the sky or, or diamonds against black velvet, God can reveal some aspect of his glory, and he wants us to see it. The Lord's not fickle. He's not some capricious God that, that is vain and he needs the attention for others. No, no, no. He is good. Everything he does is good. In fact, he is the supreme and highest good. There is no one or nothing better than the Lord God. God reveals his glory so that we would not settle for anything else other than him. And the time between point A in Genesis 1 to point B in Revelation 22 is to reveal his glory throughout all creation, but most especially to humanity. The problem is we would settle for much less. Look at what we do to one another when left to our own devices. But consider Revelation 21 and 22 where God is steering us toward all of eternity. Every wrong will be redeemed. Every heartache will be filled with joy. His glory will shine all over the new heavens and the new earth, and we will see it uninhibited. Understanding that God creates everything, that he sustains everything, that he owns everything, and that he intends it to be used for his glory should have a profound influence on our study of our origins and our purpose for life. In our time remaining, very quickly, let me provide you with four points to ponder as we begin our study of Genesis. And again, this is going to be quick as well. First, it should go without saying, the universe is all about God, not man. The universe is all about God, not man. He is a good and gracious God. He brought forth creation to bring us life and to have purpose in his kingdom. And he wants us to enjoy it, and we receive the benefits of it. But do not be deceived. The universe is for him and not us. Living as if we are the sinner is the problem with us, not the solution for us. A second point to ponder. When seeking to explain the purpose of the universe, the Christian is to start with God, not man. When seeking to explain the purpose of the universe, the Christian is to start with God, not man. We are so self-oriented, and we seek our own glory. We, we continue to search for every way to explain the universe apart from God so that we can put the emphasis back on ourselves. When you start with men and women, you will arrive with man-made, sin-tainted solutions to life. They seem right to a man and woman, but in the end, they always lead to death. Therefore, we must start with what our Creator tells us about ourselves as He reveals Himself in His Word. It makes sense for the person to, who designed it to tell us about it, right? I, I heard a story recently. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a story that I think backs up what I'm trying to say. Uh, a, a sawmill had hired some new lumberjacks to go and harvest timber uh, for the sawmill. And they hired a young man uh, that uh, was new to the job. And they gave everybody out their chainsaws, and they would go out and they would cut down their trees and, and bring them back in. And everybody else would get anywhere between 10 and 20 trees done a day, but this young man never got more than four. And so the foreman said, this is, this is strange. I mean, he is a strong, strapping young man. He should be able to do this. 
And so he decides he's going to go out and try to help him and figure out what, what it, he's doing. And so he tells the young man, he says, so pick up your chainsaw. Let me see you, your technique, see how you cut down the tree. He picked up the chainsaw, and he started, he didn't turn it on or anything. He just started sawing back and forth like this against it. And so the foreman showed him how to use the chainsaw, and he started to catch up to 10 to 20 trees a day after that. But I feel like we do that in life, don't we? We're working so hard using the gifts that God gave us in the wrong way, and it just complicates our life. We need to start with what God says, not with what we say in this point. And a third point to consider here. We need to ask ourselves, is the Lord worthy just because he says so? If he is the supreme good and nothing is better than him, and he is the one that can satisfy the longing of our souls, then we should, long-term in our examination of the Bible, going all the way back to creation, see a good God behind it all. We should be able to taste and see that the Lord is good, so says the psalmist. In our study of Genesis, we will encounter real historical people that rebelled and suffered. We will ask ourselves, does God reveal that he is good? Do we see God using those occasions to redeem them for his glory? Because after all, this is a story about him. When Adam and Eve rebel against God's one command in the garden, do we see God's goodness in the way that he redeems the fall for his glory? When we see the flood, do we see how God's goodness was at work for his glory? When we see old man Abraham about to plunge the knife into his one and only son from Sarah, do we see God's goodness for his glory? When deceiving Jacob tricks Esau for his birthright, does God use that situation as a display for his glory? When Joseph is sold into slavery by his own brothers, does God redeem that for his glory? I think we will see that in all these things, God maintains his goodness that reflects his glory. And last, the doctrine of the glory of God in all things affords great comfort for the believer in Christ. The doctrine of the glory of God in all things affords great comfort for believers in Christ. Knowing that God redeems all things for his glory means that every occasion that we endure suffering is meaningful. Every occasion. If a group of terrorists march in here and they take us prisoner and decide to rid the world of us, God sees our faithfulness in that moment. And the world will hear of it. And it will edify believers and draw non-believers to him due to our faith. He will use it for his glory. When you lose a loved one, and you feel like you can't breathe because the loneliness is just so intense, God will be glorified in your faithfulness to him as you say, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. When you deny yourself some worldly privilege, whether it's pornography or drugs or a prohibited relationship or even accolades from society, things that in the moment you feel you must have, when you say no out of faithful obedience to him, your denial is not in vain. It will be a faithful testimony to his glory. You'll be able to say with Paul, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And when your body begins to waste away and it breaks down on you, instead of becoming embittered, you say, The Lord gives, 
and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God will use that for his glory. And it does make it a little sweeter, a little easier, knowing what the final outcome of our future glory with him will be like in Revelation 21 and 22. But here's how we know for certain that God's glory is always redeemed, even through tragedy. The promise is revealed in the example of the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. Jesus came into this world and lived a sinless, perfection life. He suffered through his obedience, and he was killed by men and women for it. Yet God was faithful, and he was raised from the dead as the first fruits of our redemption. And to tie all of this together with what we have been learning all along since Christmas Eve, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What more glory could you ask for than the example of Christ Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, I know that I'm preaching to brothers and sisters who are going through difficulties in life right now. I know that they're having struggles. I know they have fears. I know, Lord, that in the midst of where they're at, there are even times where they feel like they are despairing. But, Lord, I pray that the confidence of what we've just studied would reassure them that as we go from point A to point B, you are at work. You are redeeming all things for your glory. It's hard to embrace that in the moment. But by faith, Lord, we want to. We want to believe it. Because, Lord, sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it creates frustration. Sometimes, Lord, we doubt. Sometimes we waver. But in the midst of it, Lord, we want to be reminded of what you did through your son, Jesus that even though he went through the most tremendous agony that any human being would ever go through as he received the full wrath that we deserve from our sins, that he triumphed in the end, that he was risen from the grave, and that he reigns victoriously forever. And so, Lord, remind us this day as we go through our sufferings, as we go through our trials, that it is going to be worth it. We may not see it right now, but in the end, we will give testimony. We will proclaim as we arrive with everyone else at your throne, saying, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. To him belongs all power, glory, and honor forever and ever. Amen.